0: All right, everybody, Badlands Food. I've been thinking about getting a dog. With my little family, we're about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have a interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Catherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash darktopic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com For those using the Apple Podcast app, Dark Topic is finally available to you in plus format. Subscribe with a few simple clicks to get early ad-free episodes, plus the monthly monster and Jack Luna's Dark Fiction for a limited time, you can try it out for three days free on the Apple Podcast app. Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Hello out there. Once in a while, something truly horrible hits the news and there's nothing fascinating about it. It's just truly horrible. We don't follow it. We don't share it. We just get the gist. Think to ourselves, whoa, oh no, that's bad. We have our imagination, stuff its hands in its pockets, let it walk away whistling. Forget it. Don't even want to think about it. Did you hear? Yeah, it's pretty bad. Ruin my morning Did they catch the guys? Yeah Well that's good But there's nothing good About the world In the wake of something Truly horrible There's a sickening emptiness We face as human beings When another human being Shows what we're capable of On the lowest of levels And to avoid Having to deal with that We look away Make ourselves busy Because to stare into That type of emptiness Feels like Tempting evil Like entering A losing lottery Though when it comes to random massacre To senseless indiscriminate violence Each and every one of us Already holds a ticket Bad things seem to happen more often at night The cover of darkness brings the worst out of the worst of us And all you can hope to do is avoid whatever's out there Lock the doors, the windows Ignore the doorbell Lay low and mind your business Keep the demons at bay Until the sun comes up Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is a true crime happening. The Wichita Horror. The Carr brothers, Reggie and Jonathan, grew up rough. Though, because they were only a couple of years apart, they grew up together. Which helped, in the beginning. They were sexually assaulted by their stepfather after having been abandoned by their biological father. Their mother was a drug addict and an abuser herself. There were a lot of children, and she would use them against one another. Reggie, the older of the two characters here, was always in trouble. His mother would get his siblings to hold him down while she beat him with a belt or electrical cord. Usually Jonathan would have been part of whatever mischief had provoked a literal whipping, and the brothers found themselves stripped naked at times while being beat. Of course, no child deserves to be held down naked by their brothers and sisters while their whacked-out mother whips them, but the brothers were poorly behaved, dealing with abandonment issues, and the fact that the man mom brought in once dad disappeared was molesting them. Reggie started molesting the little kids as mom would babysit. He was six when this started. It said he was attempting sex with a cousin by age eight. The mother had sexually explicit photos of herself, likely taken by the greasy stepdad, which Reggie and Jonathan found and kept for themselves until they were found out and beaten. I've heard of kids stashing porn mags in their treehouse, but to keep pornographic images of your own mother seems a little twisted. And it's all twisted, the childhood of the car boys. They're dealing drugs before their teenagers, their uncles supplying them. One of their best customers is their own mother. The kids are passed around to aunts and uncles when times get particularly tough. Lots of movement, no stability, switching schools like crazy. You get it. They end up in Dodge City, Kansas. Both brothers with histories of violence through gang activity and little respect for themselves. Others, life itself. Dodge City has a sky-high crime rate in the year 2000, where this all culminates between December 8th and the 15th a week where nearby Wichita feels the wrath of the Carr brothers, Jonathan, 20, and Reggie, 22. So is that good enough on the sad, disturbing background check? I think so. Now, let's explore why these two are currently on death row at age 40 and 42, following their perpetration of an event infamously known as the Wichita Horror. Dennis Raider, BTK, is maybe on his way to church, listening to Christmas carols on the radio, while at the same time the Carr brothers are cruising around snowy Wichita, Kansas, in early December of 2000. One of them, probably Reggie, the oldest, brings up this idea to carjack people driving alone and have them empty their accounts at drive through ATMs. It's too bad they don't spot Raider's lily white ass and give him everything they got coming for a group of innocents it should be said that the carr brothers are black and all of their victims will be white and this raises all kinds of racial commentary later the carr brothers grew up poor and in tough conditions so picking on affluent whites maybe brought some sadistic joy wichita is like 75 percent white and 10 percent black so that probably has something to do with it as well but i'm not here to speculate on the minutiae of the motivation for the malicious mayhem and murder meandering my mission's way at this very moment Messily moving like mozzarella melting over a mortadella Mayo mixed with mild mustard Shut up Stop it I'm so sick of trying to find the right words On this situation How about I just cut the shit And throw it at you Thursday, December 7th, 2000 Approximately 10.45pm 23-year-old Andrew Scriber 6-foot, blonde hair, blue eyes walks across a dimly lit parking lot after grabbing a snack from a come-and-go, a convenience store. Yeah, it is. He enters his SUV, a nearly new Ford Expedition. As he turns to grab his seatbelt, Andrew notices a gun being pointed at him through the window, a black semi-automatic handgun. It's held by Reggie Carr, an intimidating figure at over six foot tall himself. Reggie yanks open the door and forces Andrew over to the passenger seat. Andrew attempts to talk his way out of this or through it but Reggie smashes him over the head with the butt of the gun. Shut the fuck up and don't look at me bitch. Then the SUV is exiting the parking lot. Andrew is bleeding. He's terrified. He's wondering why he needs to be in the vehicle still. Reggie pulls into a dark alleyway and his younger brother Jonathan hops into the shotgun shoving Andrew into the back seat. Jonathan, with his hair done up in wild twists, Coolio style, pistol whips Andrew when he looks at him. Don't look at me, bitch. The brothers are the same, cackling as they look at each other wild-eyed, feeding off the terrorization of their captive. It's as if they don't consider him human, or they themselves have become dehumanized to the point where life means so little. The question as to why Andrew needs to be in the vehicle is answered when Reggie Carr pulls into a drive-through ATM and orders Andrew to withdraw as much as he can and to get a receipt. The back passenger window slides open and Andrew does as he's told, taking out $300, the maximum allowed. The plan is solid as far as robberies go. Security cams only pick up Andrew reaching out the back window of his own vehicle to withdraw the cash. The two villains are hidden from view up front with the tinted windows up. Andrew hands Reggie the receipt as requested and it shows $508 remain in the account. So the process is repeated at two more drive through ATMs until the account shows eight bucks and some change left over, a number that makes the brothers laugh hysterically. Look at this poor bitch. Jonathan orders Andrew to take off his watch and necklace while Reggie drives them back to the alleyway Jonathan's car is there. And before Jonathan exits, he takes the jewelry and hits Andrew again with the butt of his gun. Maybe we should strip him, take his shoes and pants, leave him out in the snow, Jonathan says. The brothers share another laugh before Jonathan exits, gets in his car, a four-door, tan Toyota, and soon begins leading the way out of the city. Andrew believes he's going to be executed, driven out into the desolate back country and shot by the side of a dirt road. He is ordered to lay down on the floor in front of the back seat and after about 15 minutes he hears the pavement change to dirt under the expedition's tires. It's not long before Reggie brings the SUV to a halt. Reggie then turns the vehicle off and asks Andrew if he has a spare tire. He does. Then Andrew waits, face down, to see what will happen next. Jonathan is telling Reggie to wipe the vehicle down and he does. Then Reggie tells Andrew that his keys will be in the road He'll have to find them He also orders him to wait 20 minutes Before he goes to find the keys Moments later, Andrew hears gunshots And the SUV sinks to the side Then the sound of a car rolling away And then after another minute Deafening silence Bleeding and dazed Andrew exits to the cold darkness of a Wichita back road There is a thin layer of snow on the ground And the moon reflects off it giving him some light. It takes more than 20 minutes to find the keys, and when he does, Andrew doesn't bother to change his back tire before riding the rim back to the lights of civilization. He gets home, past midnight, in a world far different than the one he knew when he left that afternoon. Concussed, bleeding, traumatized, but thankful to be alive, Andrew Scriber calls 911 and reports what will be considered a somewhat typical carjacking. Hey, At least you got your vehicle, bud. Usually they take it, leave you out in the snow with no pants on, or a hole in your head. Consider yourself lucky. Four days later, Monday, December 11th, 2000, approximately 9.20 p.m. 55-year-old Linda Walenta, a librarian and cellist for the Wichita Symphony Orchestra, a wife, a mother, is driving home in her brand-new GMC Yukon, when she notices a tan four-door appears to be following her into her upscale East Wichita neighborhood. When she eventually pulls into her driveway, Reggie Carr parks on the street, and Jonathan Carr exits the passenger side, approaching the Yukon with purpose. A gun is hidden in his jacket. Linda rolls her window down a few inches and asks the young man with the crazy hair if she can help him. That's when a gun is shoved sideways through the window, and Linda screams. She tries to start the vehicle, but it's already running. Jonathan is demanding she open the door when Linda finally slams the Yukon into reverse, and the driver's side window explodes as a result as it's blasted with bullets. It all happens so quickly, and by the time the Yukon rolls to a stop in the street, Jonathan is caught up to Reggie, who started driving away when the gunshots rang out. Linda tries to push the gas pedal, but she can't feel her foot or anything from the waist down. She's been shot three times, and one of the bullets has severed her spinal column. As her assailant makes his getaway, Linda does the only thing she can and lays on the horn. A neighbor soon gets to her and calls 911. She is gravely injured, bleeding badly, and her condition is considered critical when she arrives at hospital. Linda is able only to give a description of a tall black male with crazy hair. She believes the getaway vehicle to be a light-colored Honda, the make being incorrect. Three weeks after the attack, Linda Walenta is being transferred to a rehab facility when she suffers a pulmonary embolus, a complication of her paralysis, and unfortunately, she dies. By then, her killer is already in custody, along with his brother, for one of the worst multiple murders Wichita had suffered since the days of BTK. Thursday, December 14th, 2000, approximately 11.30 p.m. The Carr brothers are tailing a brand new BMW close to the area of their deadly botched carjacking. The lone woman, Jean Beck, makes the tan car after a couple of turns. She thinks she's being followed. She calls her daughter, asking her to open the garage door for her. This incredible show of instinct will save her life and maybe even that of her child's, though it will doom a house full of others. The brothers follow the BMW into a block of condos and are surprised when their quarry seems to disappear into the driveway of one up ahead. It's dark, and they try to spot the address number as they pass, but have to settle on guessing which garage the BMW was seemingly eaten by. They continue driving through the complex, slow. This is a safe place, where people watch for kids during the day, for cats at night. As they cruise through, the brothers are debating whether they should invade the condo and take the BMW by force. It's not much of a debate. The only question is of where to turn around. A few minutes later, they return to the general area of their target, park, and together approach the wrong condo, or the right one, depending on which anti-lottery ticket you were holding this night, in Wichita. It's a triplex, and it's full of 20-somethings all with bright futures ahead of them, until the lights dim when the doorbell rings, just before midnight. The Carr brothers wait tensely on the dark porch, preparing to kick the door in, if they're questioned. One of them rings the bell again, and after a continued period of silence, the porch light comes on, and some scuffling sounds emerge from behind the door, before it magically unlocks, then opens. Why spend time breaking in When there's a button on the face of most homes that, if pressed, does all the work for you. Reggie and Jonathan bully their way in and shut the door behind them, locking it. The horror is in the details. Five people are in the house, and if the Carr brothers had known this, they would not have rung the bell. Just next door, a mother settles in for the night with her daughter, BMW sleeping safely in the garage. They don't feel a thing. 29-year-old Aaron Sander has answered the door and unwillingly invited evil into the house. Aaron has been studying for the priesthood, something he's very serious about. So serious that he and his girlfriend Heather had decided to separate. Heather is here tonight, in fact. They've remained good friends. Heather, inspired by Aaron's sense of duty to something larger than himself, has been considering joining a convent. The preschool teacher is an extremely well-liked and respected member of the arts community, a dedicated church volunteer, not to mention beautiful, a pure pleasure, by all accounts, to be around. And isn't it crazy how you could be doing everything right on paper or parchment or papyrus and still the devil can waltz in whenever he wants. While Reggie Carr holds Aaron, the prospective preacher at gunpoint, Jonathan Carr begins searching the house. The first bedroom door he opens reveals a couple in bed. Jason Befort, a 26-year-old high school teacher, shouts, almost screams, when he realizes there's an intruder in the house. Jonathan carves an imposing figure in the doorway. Even without the gun, he points sideways at Jason as he yanks the blankets from the bed. The action reveals Jason's girlfriend, Holly, a young elementary school teacher, regretting her decision to stay the night. Holly watches in fear as the man at the door is joined by another equally imposing stranger. The Carr brothers are licking their chops and making crude comments about their discovery of a pretty young woman in the house. Aaron is shoved into the room and told to sit on the bed with Jason and Holly, while Jonathan Carr continues his search of the house. Moments later, another shout, this time from Bred Heike, and I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing these last names. Brad is one of the three main residents of the home. Brad, like everyone else about to become captive, had been living life by the book. The 27-year-old had worked his way to become director of finance at his company. And this night, Brad had just turned in after watching TV with Jason. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by uh, the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I wanna be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. (laughs) Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you wanna learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition, Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, There's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient and it's an amazing value especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off on limited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. All right, everybody, Zipix Toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix Nicotine Toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix Toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great, long-lasting flavors, and they have options in two milligrams and three milligrams of nicotine. Zippix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, <laughs> uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape, where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12 infused toothpicks, if you're not a nicotine user, or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zippix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix, nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zipmore smoke less with Zipix, nicotine toothpicks. The group of guys are close, saving money together by sharing the triplex. And now they're closer than ever, as Brad is shoved between Jason and Aaron on the crowded bed. Jonathan Carr is now brandishing a golf club, while Reggie continues to point a gun around the room. Aaron has yet to give up that there's another girl in the house. As the Carr brothers erratically shout questions that sound like orders, asking about where the phones are, where the money is, where the people is, 25-year-old Heather Mueller emerges. She had been up talking with Aaron by the light of the Christmas tree when he left to see who was at the door, and she's now grabbed, corralled, as Jonathan storms around with the golf club raised, and soon she's tossed on Jason's bed as well. The men assure their terrorizers that everyone is accounted for and are whacked into silence with the golf club. Heather and Holly barely know one another, but they are as close as two human beings can get now, crushed together for some comfort, as the Carr brothers leer like hungry dogs, conniving to steal meat. Speaking of dogs, Holly had brought along her little schnauzer, Nikki. The pup looks like a wind-up toy pacing around the room nervously. All of this aggression is foreign to her, and when she finds her growl, the brothers threaten to kill it if someone doesn't shut it up. Holly quickly grabs her pup To quiet her What happens next Is madness The brothers demand to know How much money each has In their bank account Jason thinks he has about 400 Holly says around 5 Heather and Aaron think They each have around 200 bucks And Brad knows He has $1500 This is going to be A profitable night For the villains They excitedly whisper To one another a game plan And then To the surprise of the five captives demand everyone get naked. Get naked? Oh no, why? At gunpoint, everyone undresses themselves. The group is forced into Jason's cramped closet after it's first emptied and checked for weapons. The closet is about six feet wide and two feet deep. Then the door is slid shut and the Carr brothers begin ransacking the house. Finding nothing of great value, they soon return and the naked group in the closet can hear them loudly making plans to have some fun, to start up a sex party. The closet door aggressively opens and a gun enters, swinging around in the terrified faces, peering up from the miserable darkness. Heather and Holly are told to get out. They do. Then the three naked men are told not to try anything stupid or they'll die. The closet door closes and the so-called party get started. The Carr brothers force the girls to perform sex acts on one another egging them on crudely directing them. This goes on for about 10-15 minutes before the brothers have another idea. Heather is sent back to the closet and Brad is brought out. The brothers demand Brad to have sex with Holly. They delight in knowing Jason can hear what's happening. Holly lays with a t-shirt over her face and endures first Brad then her boyfriend, Jason, being forced to have a turn on her. none can get an erection, however, which is highly amusing for the Carr brothers. Aaron refuses to do it, but a gun is pressed to the base of his skull and the brothers begin a countdown. He tries, but like the others, he can't achieve an erection. Eventually, all three men are returned to the closet, beaten by the golf club, naked and humiliated, ashamed not for their inability to rape Holly, of course, but just horrified, disgusted, and dehumanized by the experience. And then each are forced to do the same to Heather, which works out about the same way. The Carr brothers have seen enough. They've had a good laugh as well, and they return Aaron, Jason, and Brad to the closet. Over the course of this horror, Holly and Heather are brutally raped by both Reggie and Jonathan. They are passed back and forth and loudly humiliated, a play-by-play being shattered out to make sure the men in the closet are aware of how vicious and nasty the girls' experience is. Then the girls will returned to the closet. While the Carr brothers continue searching for valuables, I imagine the mood is quite miserable in the closet. What do you say? How do you console anyone in such a situation? At some point, an engagement ring is discovered in Jason's room, and this is how Holly naked, shivering, bleeding from the rough assault, finds that her boyfriend had planned to propose on Christmas Day. One by one, the captives are taken from the home and driven to banks, like Andrew Scriber had been a week previous. Jason's silver Dodge Dakota pickup truck is chosen for the task, and when all of the money is finally collected, a task that takes almost two hours and sees the girls again raped by one brother or the other to pass the time, it is closing in on 2 a.m., What are they going to do with these five people? They've seen their faces, heard their voices. The girls are covered in car brother DNA. What to do? They spend some time sloshing cleaner around in areas of the house they'd spent time in before whispering the next steps of their on-the-fly game plan to one another. Then the cars order the three naked men into the garage and into the trunk of Aaron's Honda Accord, while the girls, wearing only sweaters, are split up. Jonathan takes Holly to Jason's pickup truck and Reggie keeps Heather. He tells his younger brother not to put up with any shit and that he'll lead. Jonathan waits for Reggie to pull out of the garage then follows the white Honda holding four captives out of the complex. The ride must be hell for the doomed friends in the cramped trunk. It's cold and snowy out. They must be terribly uncomfortable. This is torture, mentally, spiritually, physically. Holly and Heather can only watch the traffic dissipate and the lights from homes begin to space out as they are taken away from civilization. Finally coming to a stop in a snowy lot beside a snowy soccer field, out in an empty area at the end of a lonely road. The Carr brothers order everyone out in front of Aaron's Honda. Line up, on your knees. They do as they're told. Four hours in, everyone knows it's useless to attempt reason. Then, one by one, they are executed. First Heather, falling forward face first. Aaron is beside her and his last words are, Please, no sir, please. Then he's gone. Blood spraying over the snow. Next Brad, and it's hard to say what position is worse, being next or fourth or last or already shot and bleeding away. Holly hears Brad go, then feels her boyfriend Jason be blasted away from her shoulder. Holly's at the end of the line, and she shuts her eyes as the gun then goes off behind her head. The Carr brothers jump into the pickup truck, run over the five victims for good measure, then speed away. Nothing but the sounds of gouting blood. Holly can hear her friends bleeding to death, and that's incredible, because she's the only one in the group that can hear anything at all. She waits a while, too scared to move. She waits until the lights and the sound of Jason's truck disappear completely. Then she waits a little more. It's cold, 17 degrees Fahrenheit. But that's the least of her worries. Holly has been viciously raped, shot in the head, and run over by a truck. By two men who will return if they see movement in the rear view. When Holly thinks she's okay to move, she wonders if she'll be able to. She can. And now she's standing, sore, beat up, run over and she's going one by one to her friends, asking if they're alive, seeing if they're awake in any way, but they're all motionless. She rolls Jason over and sees blood coming from his eyes and spurting from a hole in his head. Holly takes off her sweater, leaving herself naked, and makes a tourniquet around the head of who would have been her fiancé, had this horror not unfolded so unfairly. Then Holly is running through the soccer field towards Christmas lights on a distant home. It would be easier to run on the road, but she's too afraid the men will come back. As Holly stumbles naked through the field, alongside the road, three or four opportunities for rescue pass. Vehicles with bright headlights. But rather than flag them down, Holly drops to the ground and covers her naked body with snow. She's bleeding from the rapes, but also from the bullet that grazed her. Grazed her after having ricocheted off of her hair clip, which is amazing. Also amazing is Holly climbing a fence with barbed wire on top, rather than using the road. Her bare flesh is shredded as she makes it over. Nothing will stop her. She believes she's dying, and is determined not to be caught by the men before she can tell someone what has happened. She crosses an empty highway and climbs another barbed wire fence. Holly is warmed by her own blood, oozing out from shredded flesh, all over her body now. Then she's at the door of the Christmas lights house ringing the doorbell, that magic button that brings people to turn the lock, even in the middle of the night. The door finally opens, and she collapses, croaking the words, Call 911. The young couple at the door take her in. Holly has run a mile, completely naked and badly injured, through a snowy field and over two fences made of blades. Twenty minutes, about the same amount of time it's taken the Carr brothers, to return to the house. Paramedics and police respond to the incredible scene on the Wichita outskirts, tending to Holly, who will survive this night, then to the four in the field, finding Jason and Heather lifeless, while Brad and Aaron still are clinging to life, though gravely injured and in cardiac arrest. Unfortunately, none will make it. Meanwhile, the Carr brothers are picking over the triplex, further covering their tracks with cleaner and collecting Brad's television into Jason's pickup truck. When Nikki, Holly Schnauzer, starts barking at them, she's hit with the golf club so hard her head nearly comes off. And still, after all of their heinous activities this night, the brothers find this humorous. Spirits are light. It's been a hell of a score. Two grand or so richer, a nearly new truck, 52-inch TV, some jewelry, a jar of change, multiple rapes. Who was your favorite? Oh, and five murders. That's what's up. When the two drive away, Reggie in the pickup and Jonathan in his tan Toyota, the police are almost to the house. they just missed the car brothers, in fact, who were clueless they'd left a surviving victim to blow the whistle. They figure there's time to sell the truck, but there's none. Reggie drives the truck to his girlfriend's apartment and borrows a white Plymouth to go back and make sure the original crime scene at the Triplex has not yet been discovered. At around 4.30 a.m., a detective notices Reggie drive slowly by, then make a U-turn back the direction he came, which is highly suspicious. Reggie is pulled over and his name taken down off his driver's license before being released. An hour later, a resident of the same apartment Reggie had left the silver pickup truck at recognized the truck from an early morning news report. There's a TV in the back, and the man knows what he's looking at when Reggie car emerges from the driver's side, hoodie up, Eyes bloodshot and suspicious. The man plays it cool and heads to his vehicle, then drives straight to the police station. It's not long before police are at the door of Reggie's girlfriend's apartment after speaking to another witness who had helped Reggie bring the TV up to the unit. When the police come to the door, Reggie thinks about jumping from the balcony, but it's too high. He can't believe he's been caught so quickly. And neither can I. I mean, I can't recall another case where everything fell apart so quickly for the perpetrator's. Reggie Carr is covered in evidence. There's DNA, stolen property, ATM receipts with the victims' names on them, the truck. It's not long before Jonathan Carr is tracked down as well. His girlfriend's mother sees the news and the description of a man wearing a black and orange FUBU sweater. That's what the young man in her couch is wearing. She also hears of the engagement ring being stolen. Incredible how fast the information is coming out, and it's a good thing the Wichita PD decided to be so open as the woman then checks sleeping Jonathan Carr's jacket and finds a box containing an engagement ring. She looks at the window of the apartment and confirms that there's a tanned four-door Toyota out there as well, which police are seeking. And now the woman has her daughter at the door and they're calling Jonathan in from a neighbor's house. When police arrive, Jonathan manages to run, but is caught after a short chase. And it's over. Just like that. Wrapped up before lunch, The Carr brothers, unable to even spend a dime. Well, Reggie tipped the guy who helped with the TV before that guy tipped police off as to which apartment he was in. And it's amazing. Instant karma, as they say. Though if karma exists, I sure wish it would hurry up sometimes. That was a long night. Maybe karma only has to do with the light. and only works when the sun comes up. That'll do it. Something nice about all of this that I learned later once I'd finished recording is that Holly, shared by most only as Holly G to protect her identity, ended up marrying and having children with the first victim of the Carr brothers, Andrew Scriber. The two survivors and all this ended up together. Which is really something, isn't it? Jonathan and Reggie Carr were sentenced to death and still wait to be executed over 20 years later. The Wichita Horror more infamously known as the Wichita Massacre, a pitiful, empty-feeling event in the way those poor people were dispatched of, like they were nothing. And of course, they were something. Each from the final crime would have been in their late 40s, early 50s today. And it always blows me away when killers like the Carr brothers have the audacity to continue fighting for their rights while in prison, pushing for appeals, searching for loopholes, forcing the families to stay vigilant and attached to the case. It's unfair, and the audacity of them doesn't actually surprise me, just that they're allowed to do this. A firing squad would be the perfect punishment, an end to this, in my opinion. Drive them around naked in the trunk of a car first, graze them with bullets, then have the brothers run through a snowy field of barbed wire whacked by women, brandishing seven irons. And even then it wouldn't be even. Unless you had a group of deranged schnauzers rape them to death, I guess. And even then, still not even. Anyways, if you're looking for more Dark Topic and you listen through Apple Podcasts, Dark Topic now offers the Monthly Monster, where I cover a serial killer each month, uh, normally just on Patreon. But now I offer the Monthly Monster and Jack Luna's Dark Fiction. Both of these offerings are now available through Dark Topic Plus. Uh, You'll also get ad-free early releases. I mentioned all this in the beginning, but I'm reiterating. Dark Topic Plus is now available for those who listen on Apple Podcast app. Subscribe and get the best extras that I have to offer from Dark Topic. And, of course, there's patreon.com darktopic where you get all kinds of extras, more than that. But for those looking for an alternative, I heard you, and it's there on Apple for 10 bucks a month. You can check it out and uh, get it three days free to see if it's for you. Uh, just another way to, to get additional content. To be clear, if you're on Patreon, you're already getting what's being offered through the Apple subscription. Speaking of Patreon, I have some shout-outs for those supporting at a high level over there. John Quintan. Thanks, John. Margaret Burnett. Hi, Margaret. I hope you're safe out there on the road. Leslie Phipps. Thank you, Leslie. Cassie Taibo. T-H-I-B-E-A-O. I'm terrible. I guess, you know, I should have got those names right throughout, but it kind of happened quickly, and I couldn't find um, a way to get their last names properly spoken. So um, I'm continuing that trend here, I think, with Cassie Tyboth. Sorry, Cassie. Tybo, Tybo. That's like a workout uh, situation. Anyways, Rocker Tullacy won your mom. <laughs> Thanks, Rocker Tullacy won your mom. Nova. Thank you, Nova. Kristen Rasko, you little Rasko. Kristen Rasko. Aaron B. Thank you, Aaron. Jason Young. Forever Young. Jason Young. Kirsten Dahl. Uh, any relation to Rolled? Virginia. Durante. Thanks, Virginia. Alexa. Uh Uh-oh, my phone just came to life. Thanks, Alexa. (laughs) Maggie. Lauren. Deebs. Thank you, Maggie. Lauren. Deebs. Indeed. Maxfield. Brown. Thanks, Maxfield. Powerful. Lauren. Domecki. Nothing to say about that. Thanks, Lauren. Domecki. And PMC. Thank you, PMC. What does that stand for? Let's see. Pretty Mega... Thank you, PMC. Thank you all so much. And to everyone subscribing for the additional Dark Topic content, whether through Patreon or the Apple subscription, I really appreciate it. And I will be back shortly with more Dark Topic. I hope that uh, you're all well. I'm doing okay. And uh, just just chugging along, trying to be more (laughs) out there, you know? Try, trying to trying to be a regular part of your lives I'm failing I'm not doing as well as I should be but I'm'm I'm, I'm gonna get there really with all the additional content that's why I push the patreon and, and the uh, apple subscription now so much is that I'm doing a lot over on that stuff and um, if you want more it, it is there but I'm trying to catch up and, and be more more present here on the public uh, domain so hopefully I'll be right back until then keep those eyes cocked those doors locked and stay paranoid thank you